Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Off of the Couch podcast. Maggie here. Today I'm putting up a replay, and some of you may have heard it. It was one of my most popular episodes of 2022, Dr. Ben Bokikio. What if someone told you that you could get you a great weight and improve your health markers with two 15-minute exercise sessions a week? You probably wouldn't believe me, but Dr. Ben Bocchicchio has been training people for 50 years. He has two PhDs and postgraduate work as well, and he, he has a book and you can see his method on his website. You might want to listen to this more than once, especially if you're not doing any resistance training, or if you're spending hours at the gym without getting the results that you want. There's so much information in this interview. Here's Dr. Ben. Well, usually I ask people how they got started. But uh, in your case, it looks like you found your purpose over 40 years ago, and I'm interested in asking um, what keeps you motivated to still be working in the field, and um, some people might be retired by now, but you seem to be very (laughs) actively involved. Yeah, no, um, actually, this is my 50th year in practice, Maggie, doing this stuff. Um, and I got involved because I was an athlete and I liked training and I had a history in my family of trainers and coaches and I guess I just kind of fell into it. I, I really enjoyed it and I studied it for undergrad and graduate school and doctorate degrees and all that. Um, what keeps me motivated is that we're still, I'm still trying to work with people that want to get to the next level of health and wellness and fitness and, and it's always, you know, I, I may have said something a thousand or ten thousand times, but for that person, it might be the first time they ever heard that. So, it's still kind of challenging for me and individuals and their conditions, their metabolic conditions and health. Is to me kind of like an individual puzzle that I try to solve and help them solve. And so, when it becomes you know boring or obligatory, I probably stop. But so far, I'm pretty lucky, so I, I keep doing it. Great, that's great. Um, So you teach something called smart training. Can you explain smart exercise? Yeah, so, you know, I developed this system of slow resistance training in the early 70s, 73, 74. I took it public. I opened a center of my own. I was just out of graduate school. And I developed the system of slow resistance training um, and I just gave it an acronym, you know, slow maximum response training because I thought Slow training is the basis of what we do. We move slowly so we reduce likelihood of injury uh, and so we maintain high intensity. And everybody wants the maximum, I think, response from their time and effort. Everybody wants the biggest bang for their buck, right? And so I just thought of an acronym, SMART, which is, you know, the opposite of stupid, so it can't be that bad. So anyway, um, that's the way I came up with that. But I – so what I noticed as a student and as an athlete – and as a kind of a teacher of people, even at a really young age, teacher of exercise, um, I noticed that, you know, doing more exercise 
is okay, especially in the beginning, but that's not really the answer to continued progression as you go up the ladder of levels of fitness and performance. And so it, it became pretty apparent to me that working harder, not necessarily more, was really the key to progression, you know, which makes kind of sense if you think about it. The body, if you do that which your body is used to, and, you know, even if you do it for a longer period of time, unless it's ridiculously, you know, elongated, your body doesn't really need to adapt and respond because it can handle that which you are demanding of it, okay? But if you make it harder, if you take this exercise to a point that you're not used to supporting that energy demand or the rate of the energy demand, it would, in a healthy body, at any age, really, adapt upwardly, and that's really what we're trying to do is to get to the next level or at least not go down to the lower level as we get older, you know. So um, that's the system that I developed. And conventionally, to work at that intensity, we had to use heavy loads, and most of the movements are really explosive and violent to lift the heavy loads no matter what it was. And that was okay, except that it was really dangerous. Dangerous meaning at some point in time, the wear and tear wore out the joints. And as mm-hmm. we get older, and, and even an athlete gets you know, past 25, 27 years old, um, the, the weak link is not the muscle capacity and strength and, and, and function. It's the joints that are the, really the weak link in the process. So when I reduce the speeds, having done everything slowly, uh, although intensely going to what we call muscle failure, which sounds ominous, but it really isn't, um, we reduced the mechanical stress, the force on the joints and applied the tension to the muscles, which is exactly what we want to do, and drastically reduced, reduced probably close to zero, the possibility of injury. So it kind of worked out uh, for everybody. Yeah, and and you say you have like a long history of really – Nobody becoming injured from doing the slow training. We have had nobody injured. I've worked world-class, world-record holder, Olympic gold medal winning athletes very, very rigorously and hard, and I've done rehab patients 10 days out of surgery and everybody in between at every age from 8 to 95, and we haven't had an injury, okay? So it's, 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 it's almost impossible to become injured if, if you're supervised and have some idea what you're doing, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and so you can, you can work as hard as you want, as efficiently as you want, as safely as you want. So I, kind of, I, I tried to take care of the components of what I thought productive exercise were, and those were safety, efficiency, uh, productivity, um, long-term adherence, uh, you know, things like that, and universally applicable. So we kind of, I think... We've met all those criteria as well as we can at this point in time, and if something comes up that I can, where I can improve it, I'll be right there. So, but for right now, I think it's I can defend it uh, with, with with what we do and against anything that somebody might want to argue about. Right. Well, I can see how you get long-term adherence when you're only talking about you know two 15-minute sessions a week versus what mm-hmm. most people think they really need to do. Yeah. Again. Maggie, this is a this is a pretty potent prescription. I mean, I wrote in the '70s about exercise as medicine, and I said this is a pretty potent uh, prescription. If I if I tell you I give you a pill that could reduce your body fat, that could lower your blood pressure, that could increase your muscle strength and capacity and endurance, that would enhance your respiratory breathing capacity, 
make your cardiovascular system healthier, your nervous system more responsive, your skeletal system stronger. Now, if I could give you a pill to do that, would you take it? Yeah, you take it in a minute. Well, this pill takes, you know, 15 minutes, 20 times a week, and that's honestly what it takes, not because, you know, it's a gimmick, but because that when you train at this level, exercise at this relative level, because it's the same for everybody relatively, but it's obviously subjectively different for a world-class athlete as opposed to a rehab patient, but it's the same relative right. level of effort. When you work at that level, you can't take that much, really, and you, it doesn't take that much to pr- produce the optimal response. Right. Well, that's part of my next question. I was going to ask you, considering that most women think they have to eat low-calorie, you know, like Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig, and most women think their exercise should be doing like 10,000 steps a day. So you would mm-hmm. tell them, drastically different to lose body fat that they should, that they're that's not. Well, yeah, okay, again, the, the, the 10,000 step a day thing is kind of revisionist um, hindsight, meaning that when people do X number of steps a day, or they translate activity into steps a day, the people that do 10,000 seem to reach some kind of a good critical point. The people that do less than that um, don't quite reach that point, you know, but it's just that is, again, a universal um, norm derived from studying hundreds of thousands of people or thousands of people at least, but it's not, it's not an individual prescription which I would give to anybody. Now, I divide exercise, which is a formal, directed, structured program from activity, which is less than that, which is stepping or walking or riding a bicycle or playing a sport or whatever you do, you know, swimming or something. So I'm talking about formal muscle work, okay, muscle recruitment, and known to some people as strength training because that's one of the big responses you get. But it's this resistance training at this level um, for this duration and time. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a specific formal application of muscle stimulation, Okay. And I call that exercise because it has that formality and structure. But the other stuff I consider activity. Now, activity is great, okay? But if you think about the term steady-state activity, which is basically aerobic steady-state activity, just by definition, steady-state means it makes the least imposition on your existing metabolic demand, okay? That's why you can sustain it and why it's steady-state. It's great for a developing species to have to walk seven or ten miles a day to get the food or water. It's great, you know, because you're real efficient at using fuel and not wasting it when you don't have much available fuel as we did when we developed as a species. It's terrible for losing weight and making an inroad into your stored energy. It just just doesn't make any sense. It's like saying I want to get the, you know, I want to go as fast as I can in this car, but uh, I'm not going to use the energy. I'm just going to roll it down the hill. Well, that doesn't really that really doesn't make it. It's it's an inefficient way to get to where we want to get to, and a pointing way and a disillusioning way. Because in the in the first couple of pages of my book, I, I say I wrote this book because I, I'll drive down the street and I'll see someone, almost always a woman, you know, running or jogging, and she looks friggin' miserable. And I'm sure she's really trying. <laughs> and I'm sure her doctor told her, you know, to cut down on her calories, especially fat and to just go and do more of this stuff. And she does it diligently, and it doesn't work. That's because it's the wrong prescription. Your doctor has given you a prescription for hemorrhoids, and you've got a sore elbow. It's not <laughs> applicable, okay? 
So right. doctors don't know their ass from their elbow. But so anyway, uh, understand that it's, it's just purely just not the right prescription. And, and so this other prescription, and, and in my book I go into what I call fat burning as opposed to fat borrowing. So when we walk and we do this exercise and it takes time and discipline and blah, 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 okay, we work up a little bit of sweat, we burn some calories, but we borrow the fat calories from the circulating, existing circulating fat triglyceride to free fatty acid, which is happening right now as we're talking or listening or doing. Okay, that happens. So we borrow from that cycle when we're doing steady state exercise. And at the end of that, we've created a deficit. And when we get done with the exercise, what happens? We get tired, so we slow down, and we're hungry, so we eat. So the net effect when we pay back that deficit is close to zero. That's why it's a very ineffective way to burn body fat, okay, to use the stored fat, which is what we're trying to get rid of. When we do the exercise that I'm prescribing, not only do we go through glycogen, which is sugar because it's high intensity, but we demand, because we're working at a level that the body's not used to, we demand a support flow from stored fat cells of free fatty acids to back us up in case we can't handle this emergency with the fuel that we're using that's stored in the muscle. So now, after we get done with that exercise, that 15 minutes of of high-intensity exercise, we've created a situation where our energy is super available, so our metabolism is raised, sometimes as much as 48 hours, but certainly over a 24-hour period, we're just whatever we're doing is taking more energy because we have more available, and we're not hungry because we have energy, and and unless we're eating behaviorally, you know, like, we're addicted to something like chocolate. Um, we don't need the energy. So it's, it's, it, it is the way, it is the best way behaviorally to get rid of, to utilize, you know, for once and for all, stored body fat, which is really what our objective is. Nice, very nice. Um, okay, I would like to ask about um, sarcopenia, too, when you mentioned um, people getting mm-hmm. older. Um, yep. So what do we have to look forward to if we take up weight training as we age? Okay, so there's chronological aging, okay, and that happens and you flip the calendar and, you know, it happens to me, it happens to everybody on the planet, okay? Okay, but that mm-hmm. has not absolutely to be correlative to biological or functional aging, okay? The, the, there's a difference. So... Sarcopenia, I mean, most women know what, and men, some men know, osteopenia is that, that step between healthy bone to starting to lose bone, osteopenia to osteoporosis. Well, you have the same right. mechanism with muscles, from healthy hypertrophied muscle to sarcopenic, and sarco just means muscle, so it means we're starting to lose muscle uh, to the point where we're going to get to a point where we're actually non-functional, okay? So that's the same. Now, what's really interesting, and I discovered as a very young man, is that the muscles and the bones are obviously mechanically, you know, physically, anatomically connected, but they're also metabolically connected. When you increase the protein synthesis, the muscle building in the muscle, the bones attached to those specific muscles will increase their protein synthesis, okay, which means bones are a protein matrix like a spider web upon which we lay down calcium. One of the things we lay down is calcium. The more we build that protein, that, that spider web, the, more, the easier it is to lay down calcium and the harder it is to leach off. So whenever we increase muscle or the activity of muscle or the growth of muscle, 
we increase it in the bone. And when we lose it in the muscle, we lose it in the bone and vice versa. When astronauts go into space, they become osteopenic, they lose bone, and they lose muscle. And when they get back to Earth, they do exercise, they increase their muscle, they increase their bone. I mean, puberty, same thing happens. Anytime you, unless there's a hormonal disorder, anytime you gain muscle, you gain bone. Anytime you lose muscle, you lose bone. And that's a gross, very understated way of saying that's exactly what happens. So if I can increase that muscle activity and the protein uptake or synthesis or growing of the muscle, I do it in the associated bones all the time. Okay, so you're really, you know, the point is you're really going to enjoy your retirement a lot more if you have built up the muscle and bone. You're not going to be, you know, just um, hanging around with a walker, but you're going to be yeah, able yeah, to... Yeah, you, you are definitely producing a state of a higher level of capacity and functional ability if you're stronger, okay? Uh, a, yeah. a landmark study, 2007, I think Journal of American Medical Association or British Journal, anyway, 2007, Ruiz, R-U-I-Z, and Blair, 12,000, it was mm-hmm. men, 12,000 men, and they compared all of the different variables to aging, which was the most correlative. The most correlative factor to aging is muscle strength. Not smoking, not diabetes, not obesity, not even aerobic capacity, muscle strength. If you are in the top third for your age and gender in muscle strength, you are 35% less likely to die of cancer and 40% more likely to live to be 100. Okay, that is the number one correlative to longevity is muscle strength. And there are so many studies, so it's not Ben pulling this stuff out of his hat. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think a guy was a, a Vini, V-I-N-I, and Lee, L-I, did a prospective study, a, a, a meta-analysis of I don't know how many tens of thousands of people. And if you include exercise, you know, significant, not, not significant amount, but, you know, real exercise as opposed to just, and even some of this was activity, to be honest with you. You live 8.1 mm-hmm. years longer than the people who don't. And if you include a uh-huh. good diet, whatever that is, with exercise, you live 11.1 years longer than people who don't. And that's, we're talking tens of thousands of subjects, you know, in different populations. So yeah. the stuff is pretty reinforceable intellectually and academically, and, and clinically you observe this all the time. I mean, you, you see it. It happens. I mean, yeah. so, yeah. you know, unless there's a problem, you have a disease or an accident, and obviously there's some bad stuff can happen. But for the most part, right. the most powerful or the most um, contributory positive factor you can behaviorally encounter is getting stronger, strength training. Okay, well, my next question is about inflammation because I heard you talking Mm -hmm. about that and you have good and bad types of inflammation. I wondered if you could explain that a little bit. Okay, so inflammation. Think of us as a a developing species, you know. we're running around and we twist an ankle or we cut ourselves on a branch or something, okay? The first step or one of the primary steps in healing that injury, that problem, is what we call inflammation. And inflammation is when these cells that our body produces, our immune cells, our um, uh, basically healing cells, T cells, things that eat up bad stuff like infections and things like that, are produced by our immune system, 
Okay, so and, and that's an inflammatory process. You get red and you get swollen and you get a, a scab or whatever. That's all an inflam part of an inflammatory process that's driven towards healing that which is gonna compromise, you know, the continuing of a of a healthy, vigorous lifestyle. Okay. And that point, you know, getting food and <laughs> and uh, you know, getting away from predators and things like that. Now that's that's right. what that's so that inflammation is actually positive. I mean we need it. We if without inflammation we would die. We would not be able to ward off any toxins or viruses or any imposition or pathogen or anything that's on the outside here. You know, the first thing that hit us would be like bubble boy and we'd be dead, you know? So you need that inflammation. Okay, now, that's, I, I would call it acute inflammation. Chronic inflammation, when you go into your job, you hate going in, you hate parking, you hate going on the elevator, you hate the people in the office, there's a lot of stuff to do, you can't get it done, your boss yells at you, you get home, everything's broken. Okay. This is, this is not an imposition physically, mechanically. This is a psychological, behavioral stress that causes this mm -hmm. same inflammatory, you know, get away from me process, but it never goes away because I don't have an outlet, unless you do have an outlet, maybe something like crazy like exercise or a good diet. But in any case, you, if you don't have an outlet, this constant inflammation, okay, causes a wearing, let's, let's just put it this way, it causes a wearing down of the parts, okay? It's something from which you don't really recover and it's degenerative in nature, it, whether it be in your blood vessels, whether it be in your liver, whether it be in uh, your muscle cells, your bone cells, or where the joints, you know, arthritis. If you have this constant inflammation with no healing kind of a process, if it's just a steady state of high, higher inflammation than is optimal, that's bad. That's what we talk about that at all is inflamed. This is inflamed, that's inflamed. Usually it's inflamed for most of us in the modern, you know, that have access to modern, modern medicine. Usually it's a trauma, okay, uh, that you go to get treated, but the ones you don't get treated are the ones that wear you down and basically lower your capacity to fight off anything else where the inflammatory process would be vigorous and be able to ward it off, okay? So it's, that, those are the two kind of levels of inflammation, okay? When we, Mod in modern lifestyle, our inflammations are not, you know, broken bones and wounds and things like that. They're impositions of behavior or environment on a continuous basis without a release or an outlet. Okay, and probably processed food might be one of those, you know, the... Oh, yeah, any, any, kind, of, you know, the, any kind of pathogen, intrusion, anything that, up, you know, suppose, suppose you're lactose intolerant and you drink milk, okay? That's, mm -hmm. that's going to cause some serious inflammation. Just ask your, you know, your lower GI tract, okay? I mean, that's the kind of stuff, and your body responds to it very quickly. But just think about something that doesn't quite get you to that point of disaster and happening mm -hmm. on a constant basis where it's just, you know, it, it's kind of picking at you. It's kind of wearing at you. It wears you down, okay? You, fatigue, uh, inability to mm -hmm. recover, inability to sleep properly, okay? That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And those, there's almost always an inflammation. And in my simple thought, inflammation is like a seesaw, okay, where usually there's a little bit of waver on each side, but it stays pretty level, pretty parallel, pretty horizontal to the ground. Inflammation is this continuous putting another little bag of sand on one end and keep putting it on, putting it on, putting it on a little at a time, and then boom, finally you're catapulted off into a problem, okay? That, that's what I consider oh. modern inflammation to be about. Okay. 
Um, I have, uh, let's see, one more question is, um, you sure. taught actually a low-carb diet for like 40 years, which you kind of escaped the low-fat um, <laughs> craze that came along in the 80s, which I unfortunately fell for, and, uh, you know, a lot of us did with the six meals a day and the low-fat, but you learned about low-carb mm-hmm. before that and have taught it all along. Oh, well, well. You know, and not that I was such a forward-thinking, brilliant dude, but it seemed to me that my business had to do with, you know, with athletes and people that wanted to be fit and well, and that, that um, was manifested outwardly by a leanness, you know, a presence of muscle and an absence of fat. So that was really my – and with that, I learned more and more down the road. My second Ph.D. was in health, and I learned that, you know, uh-huh. this – this is a very gross but very consistent representation of good health, this body composition. Okay? Not perfection, not, you know, a, a god on the beach kind of a thing, but, you know, a pretty good uh, amount of leanness and muscularity and, and potential for vigor and youthful activity and blah, blah, blah. Okay? So right. the, the guys that I saw, the people, actually it wasn't back then, it was guys because the women weren't in it. When I first opened my first place, Maggie, I never thought about training women in strength, you know, strength training, high intensity. Never entered my mind because I didn't think that was happening. But then I quickly learned that I had a model that came in and a U.S. Olympic volleyball girl, and I trained them like monster okay. guys, and they were great. So, but in, my real thought was I didn't know about women that were going to do this stuff, and now it's at least 50%. But, you know, back to our point, um, so I thought about leanness, okay, manifested in body composition, high level of muscle, lower level of fat. And the, the leanest people that I have with the highest level of muscle, the lowest level of fat, were bodybuilders. Now, they're not um, behavioral models, but as far as leanness and body composition, you know, they were the, almost the extreme as opposed to the extreme of somebody who's obese and immobile, you know, and things like that. So what did they do? I mean, they basically cut, cut down on carbs, okay? They increased their protein uptake. And, you know, and they even had a kind of a lower fat diet. But I thought this is the best way, and I would send some of my initial patients in the early 70s to get keto sticks to the pharmacy, and the pharmacy was a friend of mine. He said, what's going on, Ben? He said, all your people diabetic? And I said, no, I want to see if they're burning, you know, more fat than, than uh, normal, which is really what they're trying to do, and that's why we measured keto. So that's how I get into um, keto and, and basically into low-carb eating. And it was very successful, by the way. I mean, everybody was healthy. The cardiologists were happy. Uh, they were happy. And uh, it seemed to be, you know, then I obviously I studied it. At, you know, I tried to deduce why is this working so well, and I found out. And it's not the only way to go. But for most people, I think it's probably the most practical way to go with a lot of ancillary health benefits. So I said, you know, why not? Right. Right. Well, isn't that interesting that the rest of us kind of went around the barn and now we're back to what you were doing all along? I thought that was really interesting. I mean, if you see something's not working, Maggie, and I saw, the, yeah. you know, the low fat, I mean, I, it, it wasn't working. You know, people tried it. Now, some people very disciplined with decent genetics could do it, but I did notice that these people, a lot of them had to have great discipline and they were like constantly... It was like being in a monastery. They, were, they had to be so severe. And I saw the other people could have more latitude and seemed to enjoy eating more and had at least as good, if not better, results. And it seemed to require less 
discipline. And I didn't realize until a few decades later, that, you know, the satiety kind of a thing. Uh, uh, oh, wow, now these people aren't really, really aren't hungry for a reason, for, a, you know, a metabolic chemical reason. And so now there's more reinforcement of that. But again, I don't hold fast. If, I, mean, I would say for 80% of the people, it's the way to go. For the other 20, if you found a better way or, or a way that you feel better about and with, I, I have no problem with that. As long as your labs are good and you feel good and, you know, even exercise. If you've got a way to do it that's different than mine and it works, that's fine. But for most people, they're looking for these answers, and that's what I try to provide. That's great, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say I recommend that everybody get your book. You know, everybody's got 15 minutes twice a week, and it's 15 minutes of fitness. So, um, And I have the book, and then when... Uh, when I, you know, uh, arranged to call you, I went back through it and I, I saw some stuff that I hadn't read carefully enough. So I'm glad that I got this, you know, opportunity <laughs> to get some of my questions answered. So I went back through oh, it great. again. No, I yeah. mean, I wrote it and simply. I see, it's not, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's simple enough, I think, for anyone. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I see you also have DVDs for sale, and you have YouTube videos right on your website and, and probably on a YouTube yeah, channel. I mean, well. the YouTube has so many things on it now, and I, don't, I honestly don't know how they got there, but apparently I have 50 or 60 YouTube things, which is great. Um, and the DVDs basically repeat what's on there. So I, I'm, I'm, it's not that I make a bunch of money on DVDs or books, but the DVDs probably aren't at this point, I don't think, quite necessary unless somebody just wants to have them, and I don't know why, but um, YouTube shows you exactly how to do this, and I explain why and things like that. And if you go to Low Carb USA, uh, you can look up Dr. Ben. I have a bunch of my uh, presentations that I've done for doctors and for the lay people and stuff on all different features of health and wellness and diet and exercise. So that's probably the best way to get some knowledge. Okay. And then uh, so if people want to work with you, do you work online or do they just, um, you know, watch you remotely or do they have to be in Arizona? No, I do, I do a limited, okay, I mean, again, I've been doing this 50 years, so I don't take huge numbers of patients, but I do a consult for a couple hundred dollars where I go over health history and exercise history and injury and start a program with people. And then if they want to, I do some training on a limited basis and I have a couple of really, really high-level trainers, meaning that these, these people are good, good, and people love them, that if they want to, they can continue doing that, uh, you know, doing um, Zoom. I've, I've got some people. I've, I started Zooming a couple of years ago just because somebody asked me to do it, and now I've got a full load of Zoom clients that, that won't leave me. So, oh. <laughs> so whatever. Yeah, and are the low-carb conferences coming back? With, uh, yeah, we just did one good... in Boca in, in January, and the big one okay. is in, I think, the third weekend in August in San Diego. That's the biggest, I think, the best low-carb conference, Low-Carb USA. That thing is off the uh -huh. charts. I mean, say the top 25, 30 people in this field, about 15 or 20 of them go to that conference in person. So it's, it's great. I love being a part of that. Okay, great. And then, and then if people can't get to San Diego but they're interested, I think they do a good live stream now as well. Yeah, the, the live, um, they, I think they get about 300, 350 
live, you know, in person, and about the same number uh, streaming. Uh, and the docs can get their CME credits, or ed, continuing ed credits, and yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I think it's a, it's a good deal. And I, like I said, I don't I don't own the company or doing it yet, but I think it's real good exposure. I hope you found that helpful. You can check out his information at drbenbow.com, and he will be speaking at the conference coming up this weekend in Boca Raton, Florida, and you can find that information at lowcarbusa.org, and that's available either in person or by live stream. Thank you so much for listening to the Off of the Couch podcast. You can find me at offofthecouch.com. And I hope you take a small step and I'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.